So Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 21 is where we'll be spending our time together today. What is your most regrettable fashion choice? I know you have it. I'll just uh, turn on this microphone and we'll start a line right here and you guys can come up. Next Sunday, bring pictures with you if you would, please, so we can see you in all of your bell-bottomed glory and whatever that thing was. I mean, you've got to have a picture that comes to mind where you look back and you think, how did I ever think that was a good idea, right? Or maybe it's your kids or your spouse that says, what were you thinking? Maybe that was just last week. Who knows? But I can tell you mine, my, I, I have a long history of fashion faux pas, but I think at the top of the list for me was not something I wore, it, it was a haircut. So mid-80s, I'm about 11 or 12 years old, uh, and I, my hair had grown long, and uh, I told my barber, <laughs> I said, uh, hey, just leave this little bit in the back. I wanted a rat tail. That's what we called it, a rat tail. I don't know if that's a regional name. It's not a ponytail. It's just this little tuft of hair at the base of your skull that you would leave. And then for whatever reason, in my little brain, I thought, I, w- I will grow that long, and I will braid it, and then I will be irresistible. To everyone around, it will be incredible. And, but here's the deal. Even in the mid-80s, things like that didn't fly very well. And so I suffered horrible ridicule for a brief period until I, I cut off the rat tail uh, one night in tears in my home. It was so sad. Well, what, it wasn't that sad, really. But, and if, if you're here today and you have a rat tail, I'm not casting judgment on your rat tail. Wear it with pride. You do you. I'm just saying, 1986 chubby little Cody just could not pull it off. So, uh, but yours, I mean, there's that thing you've had where you've, you've seen the picture or you look back and you remember, you remember and you think, what, what was I thinking? Did my brain shut off? Did my eyes not work when I was choosing these things? Why would I ever think that was a good look? And the worst part is not just thinking about those things you used to wear, but now when you see them come back into vogue, oh, it's, we were in the city on Friday, me and my family were in the city playing around, and I just, I see people wearing things, and I'm thinking, did you just step out of 1991? What is happening with this world we live in? Why would these people not want to take fashion advice from the guy that's been cutting his own hair for 15 years? I, everyone around me is crazy. I'm the only sane one when it comes to fashion choices, something like that. Well, there's such a thing as fashion failure. We're familiar with that. We're all guilty of it in some form. But there's also a thing as spiritual failure. Spiritual failure happens in various intensities. Spiritual failure happens in various lengths. Sometimes it's a moment. Sometimes it's a season of life. Spiritual failure happens to all people. Certainly it happens to those who are not followers of Jesus Christ. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you're a spiritual failure. You may be a spiritual person. You may be spiritually minded. You may even incorporate some lessons of Jesus with your view of the cosmos and how everything intertwines. But if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you're a spiritual failure through and through. I don't tell you that to mock you. 
I tell you that to speak beautiful truth. We've got to know where our failures lie. But spiritual failure is not just reserved for people who are not followers of Jesus. Indeed, it's disciples of Jesus who also struggle in various ways and at various times with spiritual failure. You know, so many Christians live these herky-jerky spiritual lives where um, we, we have a crisis that comes up. In that crisis, we pray fervently. We make promises to God. God, if you get me out of this, then I'll do this thing for you. We make these sorts of deals. And then the crisis passes, and we just slip back into our comfortable apathy until the next crisis comes up. And then we're jerked back into prayer and promises and eventually apathy all over again. Spiritual failure can look like that. For the Christian, it can also look like being crushed by our external circumstances. And that crushing calluses our hearts against God so that anger becomes the lens through which our theology and our worship moves. We, we think of God as a perpetrator of wrongs against us rather than as a loving, redeeming, saving God who puts an end to death and gives life everlasting. That's another way Christians can walk in spiritual failure. Or it could be that we just practice our faith with externals only. We look the part. We serve in the church well or in our community well. Um, we, we have a good reputation with other brothers and sisters in the church. But we know that inside we are decaying under the rot of our own sin that is unchecked, unrepented of. Everyone else would say he or she is doing great, but we know the truth. That's another way spiritual failure makes itself known in, in the life of a Christian. Well, the disciples of Jesus in the Gospels, they were also well acquainted with this kind of failure. As we've been walking through Mark's Gospel, we've come to see the disciples struggle over and over again with their faith, just a basic belief in Jesus. And Mark doesn't paint a flattering picture of these guys. He's not worried about PR. He's not concerned about making sure their reputations are unblemished. He just tells the stories as they happen, which includes failure after failure after failure on the part of these disciples. That's grace to us because in these guys' failures, we find reflections of ourselves. And in Jesus' grace to these guys we find hope for ourselves as well. The passage we're studying today is colored start to finish by the spiritual failure of the disciples. So that's going to be our focus this morning. In Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 21, my goal is to pull back the veil on the symptoms of spiritual failure. And the way we're going to approach our passage is this. There are three distinct scenes And when we read here in a moment, I want you to keep an eye out for these scenes. And each one of these scenes is going to give us one solid truth, one basic truth about a symptom of spiritual failure. We get to the other side of our time together this morning. You should be able to diagnose spiritual failure in your own life. And you may think, man, this sounds really heavy and bleak and dark. It's not all bad news because there is grace here. Wherever Jesus is, there's grace. And so we're going to diagnose properly, biblically, and 
we're going to be compelled towards the loving mercy of Jesus Christ today. So before we jump into chapter 8, verse 1, we find ourselves, just as a reminder, we find ourselves with Jesus in Gentile territory. This is a, a section of Mark's gospel that we might call Jesus' Gentile mission. It started a couple of weeks back, if you were with us, in chapter 7. Jesus goes to a city called Tyre. And that's a Gentile, distinctly Gentile city in a distinctly Gentile region. And all that happens from there up to this passage happens among Gentile peoples in their region. So he stepped out of Jewish populations. He's with these different groups of people. But this is a different aspect of Jesus' ministry. Jesus has told us he's come for the lost sheep of Israel. But now he's going intentionally to these Gentile populations. And his ministry there expands our understanding of his mission in his ministry. He hasn't just come for Israel. He's come to make a new people for himself, to remove that dividing wall of hostility, to make one people who walk in the grace of his good news. So this is a large passage to read, verses 1 through 21 Three different scenes that you can look for as we're reading. First, we start with a feeding miracle. It's another feeding miracle. Second, there's a conflict scene between the Pharisees and Jesus. The third, Jesus in the boat with his disciples. And at every stop along the way, the disciples are experiencing spiritual failure. Follow along with me as I read Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 1. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 men were present, and having sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus, to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, It's because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves of the, for the 5,000 How many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the four thousand, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? So let me show you in our passage this morning three symptoms of spiritual failure. How can I know 
that I'm in need of the grace and mercy of Jesus today in a powerful way. If you're taking notes, first symptom of spiritual failure is this, eyes that don't see. Verses 1 through 10, I have eyes that don't see. What I mean by that is that we fail to see all that is possible through faith in Jesus Christ. We fail at this most basic understanding that with God all things are possible. When we fail at that point, we have eyes that don't see. It's a spiritual failure. Our passage begins with another feeding miracle. Uh, And so here it's deja vu all over again. The the first feeding miracle, we studied it back in chapter 6. I'd encourage you to spend some time there. Maybe go to the website and check out the sermon from there because it will add to your understanding of this passage here in chapter 8. But I want you to remember that scene. Do you you remember a bit about what happens in chapter 6? Where is Jesus when he performs that miracle? Well, he's on the... He's in a Jewish region on the Sea of Galilee. He had been in one town. The crowds were just smashing him. And so he got into a boat with his disciples to go to another town. But remember those fleet-footed Jewish people? They run along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. They get to the next town before Jesus and his disciples do. And when he stepped off the boat, uh, he, he has compassion for these people. They're like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus begins to teach them, and then late in the day, the disciples realize we have more than 5,000 people here, and they need to eat something. And so Jesus does his miracle. He takes what food they have, five loaves of bread, a couple of fish. He gives thanks over it, and then he begins to distribute the food through the disciples to the crowd. Everyone eats. Everyone eats to their fullness. They eat, and they are satisfied, and when the disciples are finished, They pick up all the leftovers, 12 baskets full of leftovers. It's an incredible miracle. The things that jumped out to us whenever we studied that passage is the Old Testament language present there. It paints this portrait of Jesus, this multifaceted picture of Jesus. Uh, there's, There's shepherd language. Jesus is the great shepherd who comes in compassion to care for his people who are being ravaged by villains, enemies, wicked people. There's Moses language used in chapter 6 in that first feeding miracle. Jesus is uh, like God. He is God who feeds his people in the wilderness, meets their needs, provides for them. There's Messiah language or king language. Jesus is the host of this great final banquet. And Jesus and these people on this Galilean hillside, they practice for heaven. That great Wedding Feast of the Lamb. It takes place in a smaller sense there on that day. Such a rich passage, and we have all these pictures. So what you and I might think is, well, we'll just take what we learned from chapter 6, and we'll just import it into chapter 8. And to be sure, there's some overlap. There's things we can learn from chapter 6 that apply in chapter 8. But there's some big differences. And I think the message of this second miracle is very different from the message of the first miracle. Here's why. First of all, is because all that specific language, shepherd language, the Moses language, the king language, it's missing from this account in chapter 8. It's not present there. Does that mean that it doesn't belong there? That's not what it means at all. Certainly we can, in a way, import those images and we see them reflected again here in chapter 8. But although there are, they are similar miracles, it's not the same message. The same, Mark is a very careful storyteller. He, when he doesn't use the same language, there's a reason for it. 
So that same language doesn't show up again in this miracle. Here's another thing that makes this so very different. It's the audience. Where is Jesus when he performs this miracle? Who's in attendance on this day in Mark chapter 8? Well, Jesus, back in chapter 7, we we see Jesus and his disciples go to this region called the Decapolis. They're in a Gentile zip code. It's possible that it's only Gentiles present this day for this miracle. Or it could be that there are Jews and Gentiles together. That would be even cooler to think that here Jesus portrays what his intended goal is with the gospel that he would make one people out of both groups, remove that dividing wall of hostility altogether. So here's Jesus with a primarily Gentile audience in chapter 8 performing this miracle. And there's something similar between chapter 6 and chapter 8 in that no one in the crowd seems to recognize that Jesus is doing a miracle. Who knows that Jesus is doing this miracle? Quiz time. The disciples do. They're the ones that get the bread, distribute it, pick up the leftovers. No one else in either of these crowds seems to say, look at what Jesus has done. What a miracle. I think they don't know. I think this miracle is for the disciples who distribute the food and pick up the leftovers because Jesus is working faith. He is developing faith in these guys who have hard hearts at this point, quite frankly. What's the message of this second feeding miracle? The message is this. Jesus has a gospel message that will redeem people from all over the planet, from every people group on earth. The gospel has a global trajectory, and he's teaching this to his disciples, and he's working faith in them in this moment. So there's a lesson for the disciples to learn here, but that lesson, I think, is stunted by their failure in this moment. Their failure comes at the very front end of this situation. If you are one of the disciples on this particular day in chapter 8, what are you thinking whenever all of a sudden the need arises for food? Jesus says, I have compassion on these people and and they need to eat. You're going to think this. Oh, I've seen this before. Oh, I I know what's going to happen. We've got a lot of people. They're all hungry. We have barely any food. I know what to do. Let's get the food. Let's give it to Jesus and see what happens. That's what you would do. That's what I would do because when I read this story, I'm better than these guys and so are you. But they fail, don't they? They utterly fail. They they don't see what's possible in Jesus. Although they've seen it firsthand before, this time they fail to recognize it. They see the need is great. They see their resources are few. Hearts are hardened. It is a spiritual failure from beginning to end for these guys. And they take part in the miracle. They distribute the food, pick up the leftovers, but it seems like it doesn't click. They don't clue in to who Jesus is or what he's doing here. And so in this moment, don't you want to just grab these guys by their ears and say, what are you doing? How can you miss this? It's so clear. You've done this before. Is it really that big of a leap to think that Jesus would do it again? Of course it's not. You, you, as the reader, you want them to get it. But let me make a case that you and I might be a bit worse off, maybe a bit thicker than these guys. It's true they fail to see all that's possible through Jesus in this scene. They don't connect their experience in the past with what they're facing in the present 
The story is certainly a lot easier if we just leave the disciples as the dummies and leave ourselves out of it. But you and I are well acquainted with spiritual failure. Here's the truth. We know a lot more than the disciples did in Mark chapter 8 about Jesus. And we've seen a lot more than the disciples have in Mark chapter 8. We've seen both feeding miracles and more. We've seen Jesus die on the cross. We've seen him walk out of the tomb. As a follower of Jesus, you have God the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. The disciples don't have that in Mark chapter 8. We know his promise to return again and set all things right. We know how the story ends. And still, you and I fail to connect what we've seen with what we're experiencing. We fail to recognize all that's possible through Jesus. And I don't know why we're that way. I mean, we're sinners, we're fallen, we're finite, all that's true, but I don't know why we react like practical atheists when crisis arises. I don't know why we forget so easily the power and the love of Jesus for his children, but we do. This spiritual failure is not uncommon. It is embarrassing. But it's important that we recognize that failure. We pull the veil back on it to be able to call it what it is in our lives. It is failure when we refuse to see all that is possible through Jesus loving and powerful and mighty for his people. There's a second way for you and I to diagnose spiritual failure in our lives. One would be eyes that don't see. Second would be ears that don't hear. In verses 11 through 13, ears that don't hear are a symptom of spiritual failure. What I mean by that is we believe the messages of the world over the messages of Jesus. We hear something, we're not hearing Jesus, we hear the world. So, Here's this miraculous feeding, this second miracle. And once they're done there, Jesus and his disciples were told by Mark, they get into a boat, they sail across to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to an area called Dalmanutha. Now, we we don't know today where that is. It's a location on the map that's vaporized over the course of history. There's guesses that it might be this town or that. We just don't know for sure uh, until archaeology turns up something more definitive. But we know this at the very least. They go from this Gentile region to a, back to a Jewish region. And when they step off the boat, there's this immediate confrontation with the Pharisees. And you know who the Pharisees are. Pharisees are a sect. We might use the term, denomination might be more familiar to us, but they're a sect of Jews. And they pride themselves on being rule keepers. And in their mind, the way that they... Uh, have favor with God is by strict obedience, not just to the rules God has given, but to the way their traditions interpret those rules. In a lot of ways, uh, I don't mean this as a jab at all, there are a lot of shared values between us today and Pharisees back then. They were evangelistic, they were serious about tithing, they were serious about worship, they were serious about purity, they were serious about missions. There's a lot of ways that we would find some common ground with these ancient peoples. But one thing, I hope this is the one place where we depart from Pharisees, is time and time again they reject Jesus 
as God in the flesh. They fail to see him for who he is. So verse 11, the Pharisees come and they begin to question Jesus. And they test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. Jesus sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? Uh, there's an important word there in verse 12. He sighed deeply. If you were with us last week, Pastor Jeremy talked a bit about this word. He gave us a great description of it. That word sigh is found at the end of chapter 7, just before Jesus heals the man who's deaf and mute. He prays and he sighs. That similar word is used here in chapter 8. He confronts the Pharisees, confront him, and he sighs again. But there's a little prefix on that Greek word, and so it adds an intensity to it. He sighs deeply. And and what is he sighing at? It's the same word, roughly. What's he sighing at? In both cases, he's sighing at the effects of unbelief. So as Jeremy's making that point last week, I'm thinking, this is perfect. Now shut up because you're stealing my thunder already. That's enough, Jeremy. Move on. Get going. We've heard enough here. If you weren't with us last week, take time this week to sit with that sermon from the end of Mark chapter 7. It was beautiful. It encouraged your soul. Um, But here's Jesus. In this confrontation, he sighs deeply. It's, It's his emotional response to these expressions of unbelief right there in front of him. They demand a sign. We might think, what's the big deal? Jesus does miracles all the time. Why not just do something to convince them? But there's no convincing with this crowd at this point. They're not seeking truth. They're not asking for a sign so they can validate the ministry of Jesus. Their mind is set. Their hearts are against him. They're asking for a sign so that they can discredit him. They want to destroy him, not confirm him. So Jesus refuses to give a sign. He's not going to indulge. It it ought to remind you a little bit of Jesus' trip back to his hometown, Nazareth, in chapter 6. You remember the reception he got there? Who's this? Mr. Big Shot, coming back home to Nazareth? Aren't you just Mary's son? We know who you are. We know your sisters, your brothers. What, who do you think you are coming back here to talk to us like this? And you remember what it said that Jesus couldn't do as many miracles in Nazareth because of their unbelief. That's not because Jesus lacks power or ability or he was somehow handcuffed, but he's not going to indulge these hardened non-believers with signs they wouldn't recognize anyways. The truth is the Pharisees have seen so many of Jesus' miracles. They've seen people healed. They've seen Jesus do all this stuff, and they've attributed every single one of Jesus' works to Satan. They hate him. They want to destroy him. Here's the question. Where are the disciples during this exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees? Now, Mark doesn't name them explicitly in this quick little episode. But where are they? They're right there with Jesus. They haven't gone someplace else. They've traveled with him across the lake. They get off the boat. Boom, there's the conflict. The disciples are witnesses to this. And it's not the first time they've witnessed this kind of conflict over and over again. They hear the accusations against Jesus. How do we know that their accusations impact the disciples? Well, it's because of what comes in the next scene. Jesus essentially accuses them of having Pharisee hearts. 
the disbelief, the unbelief, the rebellion and resistance of the Pharisees is impacting the way the disciples view Jesus. They're believing these messages of power brokers outside of Christ over the words of Jesus himself. It's a spiritual failure. When you and I allow those outside voices, those power brokers, to negatively impact our trust in Jesus, we are these types of people who have ears but don't hear. We're headed towards spiritual failure. Sometimes those voices might be voices of broad influence like media, culture, politics. All those have possible negative impacts on our faith in Christ. But I think more often, more often than not, the voices that impact us the most are the smaller, more specific voices. Like the voice that says, the more hours I work, the more valuable I am to my family. You can't spend five minutes with Jesus in the Gospel of Mark and not understand how utterly satanic that line of thinking is. The voice that says my identity is in my possessions or in my title. There's a voice that says, well, he expresses interest and I'm lonely, so let's do this thing. There's a voice that says, you can't control your anger. It's not your fault. You're just a hothead. Voices like that, that pull us away from the voice of Jesus from hearing Jesus and believing Jesus and instead sets us on a path of spiritual failure. We step away from Jesus who says, if you're weary and heavy laden, come to me, I will give you rest. Jesus who says to us, I am with you always, even to the very ends of the age. Jesus who will never leave us nor forsake us. We tune out that voice, we're deaf to his promises and we persist in this unbelief. That's spiritual failure. And you got to know that. you got to know that there are competing messages fighting for your attention. There's an enemy who is scheming in such a way as to get you to believe wicked, evil things against Jesus. For you to think that the voice of Jesus does not want you to do well, but wants to do you harm. You've got to hear the truth this morning and step out of that spiritual failure. What does spiritual failure look like? It's eyes that can't see, it's ears that can't hear. Third and finally, it's minds that don't remember. Verses 14 through 21, minds that don't remember. So Jesus and his disciples leave the Pharisees. There's a lot of back and forth on the Sea of Galilee in this big passage. They they leave that confrontation with the Pharisees, get in the boat, they sail across Pharisees are in the rearview mirror, and the disciples slowly begin to realize, one, we are hungry. Two, we forgot to bring the leftovers with us. We had seven big baskets of leftovers from this feeding miracle. We completely left them behind. Now, the way Mark tells the story, before any of them utters a word, Jesus knows what's going on. Jesus knows they're hungry. He knows they're thinking about bread. And this is a teachable moment, a moment to help these guys understand faith. And so Jesus speaks a warning to them. Verse 15, be careful. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. 
What is Jesus talking about here? Well, yeast or leaven, your translation of the Bible might use the word leaven, uh, is used metaphorically in many different ways throughout Scripture. Sometimes it's used in a positive sense. Sometimes it's neutral. Here and in many other places, most commonly, it's used in a very negative sense to describe unholiness or sin or wickedness or evil. And the thought is just that a little bit of that evil, that yeast, it has an impact on the whole person. So we've got to pay attention to the influence of of this wickedness in our lives. So when Jesus says, beware the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod, he's warning his disciples here about this unbelief, this wickedness in them. And what's he referencing by the yeast of the Pharisees, the yeast of Herod? We know who the Pharisees are. We know so to speak, what their sin is in this picture. It's, we could nuance it in different ways. Matthew gives us an answer. Luke gives us an answer. I think the good general sense is just to say it is unbelief in the person of Jesus. And that same is true of Herod. You'll remember Herod from chapter 6. This is the guy who has John the Baptist beheaded uh, because he liked the way his own niece danced in front of him. And Who did Herod think Jesus was? He thought Jesus was John the Baptist come back from the dead to haunt him. Obviously, a a non-believer. So when Jesus says, beware, the yeast of the Pharisees, that of Herod, he's warning his disciples against the influence of unbelief and the experience of unbelief in their own lives. And the truth is, the disciples are already there. They're already at this moment of unbelief in the boat with Jesus. It's evidence in this whole scene with the bread. The disciples can't make sense of Jesus' warning. Look at verse 16. How do they respond to Jesus' words? They discussed this with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. That's their take on the whole scene. What Jesus has just said is because we don't have any bread. He's, he knows we're hungry. Jesus, yeah, we, we need something to eat and Maybe there's bickering that starts among the disciples. They've only got one loaf among them. They left seven baskets back on the shore. Well, I got the leftovers last time. It was your job. No, it wasn't my job. I got them the time before. This was was supposed to be your job. Apparently, there's there's one chubby disciple who sneaks a loaf of bread for himself. He picked it up out of the basket of leftovers just for him. You guys know I have blood sugar issues. I've got to be prepared. That's all they have. Now, again, if you and I are sitting in the boat, what do we do in this moment? Jesus, we're mindless. We just forgot. We've just got this one loaf of bread. But we've seen you do this two times before. We're going to trust you. Well, that's how we read the story, that we're the heroes and the disciples are the dummies. We want to believe that that's what we would do in that moment. But the disciples don't do that. We've got we to make sure we read this story right. This, this is not a story about bread. This is a story about faith. It's not about Jesus as some situational Savior. Oh, we're hungry. We need Jesus to fix the hunger. That's not it. It's about the identity of Jesus, period. Who is he? He is God, but the disciples fail to recognize this. They don't trust. They don't believe They go hungry that night because of their unbelief in the person of Jesus. And so Jesus responds to their denseness 
by firing off five rhetorical questions in verses 17 and 18. (coughs) Why are you talking about having no bread? Uh, We don't know. Do you still not see or understand? Uh, No. Are your hearts hardened? Yeah. Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? Sadly, yes. And don't you remember? Remember what? Jesus continues his questioning in verse 19. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. They've got the math right. They can remember some things. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? I think this is where Jesus is going like this. First time, second time, what's going to happen now? I think he's wanting them to connect the dots in this moment. It's not a bread problem, it's a faith problem. Jesus is telling them, it's it's not the bread that fed those people, it's me. Verse 19, when I broke the bread. Verse 20, when I broke the seven loaves. Do you still not understand? Every spiritual failure in our lives has its origin in a failure to believe Jesus. At the core of every sin, every temptation we indulge, every appetite we give ourselves to, at the core of that is disbelief in the person of Jesus. So the disciples need food. They have one loaf of bread. Jesus is in the boat. Here he is, the host of the messianic banquet. Here he is, God with them. But they don't trust Jesus even with this little loaf of bread. And that same scene gets played over and over again in our lives. Christian man, Christian woman, in a marriage that is fracturing. These two belong to Jesus who has reconciled them, sinners, to God who is holy. And they stand before him and they say, we don't know if there's any hope for reconciliation in our marriage. You're a person who wrestles with bitterness and unforgiveness in your life. And here you belong to Jesus who has forgiven you of much, shown you mercy for much, and yet you stand in front of him and you say, I just don't know if I can ever forgive or let go of this bitterness in me. You're frantic with worry about an unknown future. You belong to Jesus who has charted the days from infinity past to infinity future. And you think, I don't know how I'm going to make it through this week. You're afraid that you're never going to be able to break the bondage of sin. You belong to Jesus who died and rose again and conquered sin once and for all, and yet you stand in front of him and think, no, this sin is just too much. I can't get rid of it. Or you need salvation, and you think, oh, I've messed up so much, there's no way. And yet this is Jesus who has shown his love for you by giving his life. And so you sit there and you wonder, is there any hope for me? I don't know that I can really be saved. Do you see how we are so much like these disciples? Do you see how it's not about the bread? It's just about faith in Jesus Christ. He has to be our everything. And how could we ever stand in front of him with all the promises and all that we've seen and all that we know 
and yet fail to connect what he has done with where we are. We fail to remember. We fail to apply his promises. We fail to believe. So Mark has laid out for us some diagnostic tools this morning. The arc from verse 1 to verse 21 is, is an arc in this story about the disciples' failure, start to finish. Now, they, they don't continue to fail nonstop. Next week, Seth is going to preach on the following passages. And I'm not going to steal this thunder like some people are prone to do. <laughs> but I'll tell you, there is a brief moment of hope from the lips of Peter. So they don't just stay in this darkness. Things are growing, things are happening. But what we've seen this morning is that spiritual failure is eyes that don't see. We fail to see all the possibilities with Jesus. It's ears that don't hear. We, we believe the messages of the world over the message of Jesus. It's minds that don't remember. We fail to apply the things we know to our trust in him. So then the big question is, where's the grace in all of this? I think there's grace all over. In the first scene we're with this feeding miracle, verse 2 There's a line that opens that verse that you may want to write in permanent marker on a bathroom mirror in your house where Jesus says, I have compassion for these people. And he is surrounded by pagan Gentiles who with some feeble type of faith are following him for days on end. They've come from far away. They haven't earned a seat at the table. He has compassion on them. And when it's time to feed these people, how does Jesus feed them? Not with crumbs. He gives them a seat at the table. You remember Jesus' time with the Syrophoenician woman in chapter 7 back in Tyre? How does Jesus really feel about people on the outside? He's not going to just give them crumbs. He gives them a place at the table. They are his children as well. So much grace in that scene. With the Pharisees, when Jesus sighs at their unbelief, in that sigh, it's not exasperation, it's not mere judgment. There's this compassion in it, this, this sorrow at the way things are. Jesus isn't happy with the way things have been, the way sin has ravaged his people. And then here at the end, where's the grace in the boat with the disciples? You know, Jesus could have just said, that's it, everybody out, <laughs> out of the boat, and better yet, I'm out of here. And then he just gets off and takes off across the Sea of Galilee. But he doesn't. Now, to be sure, the disciples don't eat that night. I think their hungry tummies solidify some lessons of grace. But Jesus sticks with them. Blind eyes, deaf ears, hard hearts and all. And he continues to show grace and mercy as he walks them towards their belief in him. Grace is dripping from this passage for me and you. Look, I'm learning this lesson. I'm preaching for myself today, this lesson of spiritual refinement. I've been going through a season where God has been, not has been, is pruning I don't know what other word to use. It has been painful. Things that I was just so sure about, or I thought things that I had settled in my heart, things that I'd given myself credit for, I'm 
God is revealing to me pride and arrogance and all kinds of just grossness. So I've been spending a lot of time in Psalm 51 lately. What I find there is that when I come to God, I can't come with my resume and expect that to get me favor. Oh, but I'm a pastor. Oh, but I've done this. Oh, I've accomplished this. Oh, whatever. The only thing I have to bring is my sin. And my only confidence is in a God whose compassion never fails, who abounds in grace, who overflows in mercy. That's my confidence. That's your confidence today. To trust him completely with your whole life. To let him rescue you from spiritual failure. And to set you day by day on a trajectory that's rooted in his grace and mercy and love. His call to you today is not that you would fix yourself. It's that you would come in all of your mess and trust him totally to love you and forgive you. That you would see Jesus, hear Jesus, remember Jesus, trust Jesus. Let's pray together. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I want to give you a minute to pray on your own here. Normally I would just start the prayer, but I want you to take a moment to respond individually in prayer to the Father, just in silent prayer. Where is he pressed with conviction this morning? Where have you identified? Where do you see disbelief in practice in your life? Would you take a moment in confession, repentance, praise, whatever your heart needs in this time, come in the confidence of God's grace and mercy and love to you. Oh, Jesus, let this brief moment of prayer be the start of a much grander response, fuller response of our faith in you. We've come in this morning beat up by sin, failing at many points. And what have we found? A Savior of grace and compassion, and mercy. We found you. Lord, lift my brothers and sisters this morning. 
Thank you for that grace that stings as we identify sin, as, as we pull back the veil on our own failures. Thank you for the grace that heals. Let us be people who believe. Lord, shape that in us. Even today, there's got to be someone here that's been struggling to just believe, period. Lord God, let this be the day when new life comes to them as they trust in the one who laid down his life and rose again for their sake. Not to trust in their own morality, not to think you're here just to fix a situation, but, but that they would believe in you fully, totally, completely, every part of who they are. God, we thank you for your grace to us that never stops. Thank you for your great compassion. So, God, we come in all of our weakness and brokenness, not to beat ourselves up, but, Lord, to rest in all that you are and all that you have for us. We've come in limping. Let us walk out in strength. We've come in in fear. Let us walk out in your confidence. We've come in with doubt. Lord, let us walk out a song of praise on our lips as we see all that is possible with you, the God of all might, all power, all knowledge, all love, the God who knows us by name. We are so glad to be your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.